Welcome to Constitutional Landmarks. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer. I'm an advocate at the Johannesburg Bar, and I've appeared frequently at the Constitutional Court. In the last episode, you heard from Gilbert Marcus and Justice L.B. Sachs about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. In this episode, I'll be talking to Salim Nakchavani. He served as a prosecutor against the Khmer Rouge in the Cambodia Tribunal. So after a number of years working in international criminal law, both in other international courts, tribunals, and in in academia, the opportunity came to to apply as one would apply for any other United Nations post for work in Cambodia. I applied and was interviewed and selected to join the United Nations complement assisting the Cambodian government with the prosecutions. And I was there for almost four years. I was involved in the investigations, trials, and appeals mainly in what's called case 002, which was the case against the remaining high-ranking leaders. But to some extent, I was also involved in the cases three and four, which concerned lower-ranking individuals allegedly responsible for grave crimes. Can you tell us about the crimes that were committed by the Khmer Rouge and what happened in Cambodia during the time of their rule? The Khmer Rouge came to power largely in response to a, a, a CIA-inspired coup that brought into power a, a vitriolically right-wing government. The Khmer people rejected that government and largely rallied behind their, their king, uh, known as Norodom Sihanouk, who's a very well-known figure from the time. Now, that, that king, I think, had communist leanings. And when he rallied the Cambodian people to, to resist this fascist regime, they, they followed him because they venerated him. And as a result, the Khmer Rouge came to power through guerrilla warfare. Eventually, Phnom Penh, the capital city, fell to the Khmer Rouge. And for a period of about three years, eight months, 20 days, this radical Stalinist regime came to power. They intended to establish an agrarian utopian society where the people work the land and the state owned the means of production and so forth, where everyone was equal, where there was freedom from want, where there was a great many other good things. The way they chose to accomplish it was a forcible movement of the entire population out into the rural areas in order to cultivate crops, uh, take care of livestock and so forth, it precipitated a a mass famine. Meanwhile, the regime being secretive, being totalitarian, started to root out people they considered to be enemies. And that began with those who were class enemies as the ideology went, the bourgeoisie, the feudalists, the landowners, the educated intellectuals and so forth. After a short period of time, the regime began to close in on itself and see enemies everywhere. Almost from the outset, they started to purge effectively, torture and kill people internal to their own revolution who they suspected of counter-revolutionary tendencies. What this brought about was crimes against humanity because the Khmer population, the population of Cambodia was under, uh, under attack. And a number of crimes were committed in the context of that attack. So you have crimes against humanity. There were war crimes committed as well against the armed forces of opposing entities, some state, some non-state. There were allegations of genocide against two groups. And those allegations were proven at trial and upheld on appeal. It was genocide against 
those of Vietnamese origin who found themselves in Cambodia and against a minority population in Cambodia called the Chum, who were neither ethnically Khmer, nor did they follow the mainstream religion of the country, which is Buddhism. They were Muslims. And so the, both the trial chamber and the Supreme Court chamber in Phnom Penh have upheld genocide charges against those two groups. And you've probably heard about Cambodia being referred to as a genocide with reference to the, the many um, millions killed. But technically that's not correct. That genocide perpetrated by Khmer people against Khmer people, sometimes described as an auto-genocide, doesn't really fulfill the internationally recognized definition of genocide. So when we say there was genocide in Cambodia, as we often do, we're saying so in a kind of common parlance, which is not a legally correct classification. In the dying days of the Khmer Rouge regime, a number of people who had supported the revolution of what was called the Communist Party of Kampuchea actually rebelled against it, allied with the Vietnamese and using Vietnamese supplied armament and technology began to resist the Khmer Rouge. The result was to eventually liberate Phnom Penh and push the rump of the Khmer Rouge up into the remote parts of the country near the Thai border, where they remained as a kind of rump state during a 15 year civil war that persisted until the early 1990s. Eventually, a peace was brokered. The situation in Cambodia remained as kind of uncomfortable status quo until the early 2000s, where effectively the Cambodian government came out and made a very strong statement. We should dig a hole and bury the past. The United Nations, however, took a very different position and there were various expert missions that went and generated endless reports and so forth. What they were saying, in sum, was that there is a prevailing situation of impunity in the country. And with that situation of impunity comes a deeply harmful social attitude towards power. The idea that if you are powerful, if you control, for example, gem mining, as the Rump Khmer Rouge did in the, in the northwest of the country, if you are rich, you can do as you wish. And living in Cambodia, I did get to see the after effects of that very deeply entrenched attitude. If you were wealthy, you could not just look down on your fellow citizens, but treat them with disdain and disregard. So the United Nations had identified this culture of impunity, not only as a legal problem, but as a social problem, preventing the country from moving forward. Eventually, after protracted negotiations, the Cambodian government agreed to have the tribunal, but only with a majority of Cambodian judges. So that Cambodian judges would be in the majority, the United Nations eventually agreed that they would need, although they had a minority of internationally appointed judges, the concurrence of at least one foreign judge would be required for every decision. So it was a very uncomfortable hybrid. And when you look at the statements of the legal counsel of the United Nations from the time, the, the gentleman who was involved in the negotiations, Hans Korel, a deeply respected Swedish lawyer, he, he now says very clearly, the United Nations should never have agreed. And indeed he hopes will never agree to such an arrangement in the future, because the concern was that it would subject the tribunal to political influence. The judiciary and the executive in Cambodia are in a close relationship. And I say that with 
with the utmost respect for the individual jurists with whom I, I got to work, I'm making a reference to institutional factors, not personal factors. That posed a major challenge in the work of the tribunal. The idea of UN-appointed staff and Cambodian staff working side by side and having to agree to do certain things. For example, as a Cambodian co-prosecutor and an international co-prosecutor, when they act in concert, they are able to achieve a great deal. But where they disagree, there was all these convoluted mechanisms in place for judicial dispute settlement between them. The same is true with the investigating agencies, which is where it was possible to achieve consensus between the United Nations and Cambodian staff. The result, I think, was very, very good. It was a high degree of collaboration. It was learning on both sides, not just this kind of pat patriarchal sort of skills transfer to the Cambodian population. As a, as a prosecutor there, I learned a great deal about justice, about the rule of law, about society from my Cambodian colleagues. But certainly the model used in every other tribunal which has a national and an international component is that the international component is in the majority and is able to take decisions. I don't think that the international community has, has ever agreed to another model similar to Cambodia. The, the tribunal was also entirely dependent on donor funding. And as a result, it lurched from budgetary crisis to budgetary crisis, not being able to plan investigations or prosecutions long-term simply because the funds weren't assured. Some contracts would go month to month, some contracts every three months, and the staff would feel uncertain and there were those kind of challenges as well. So I think the consensus is that justice at the international level needs sustained commitment. No one would think twice of funding the judiciary of a materially developed or materially developing country on a month-to-month -month basis, or indeed relying on donor funding and such a suggestion in a domestic legal system would be laughable. And yet, when dealing with mass crimes, and I, I met crimes of mass violence, the expectation is that somehow donor funding and month-to-month -month budgets are sufficient. Surely the gravity of those crimes, crimes like persecution as a crime against humanity or torture as a crime against humanity, genocide, or indeed apartheid as a crime against humanity, deserve international collective action and, and meaningful, sustainable financial support. One of the aims of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was for South Africans to find out what had happened during apartheid. Firstly, to establish the truth and secondly, to achieve a sense of reconciliation, so we could stare the cold, hard truth in the face and then afterwards create a new nation. How did this criminal process in Cambodia do in terms of achieving those ends? You know, I think when we talk about the need for national reconciliation, that language was very prevalent in Cambodia as well. We're not just talking, not just aspiring towards tolerance between previously enemy groups. If it was just tolerance we were looking for, there would be a temptation to say, we don't need truth at all. Let's just, I'll overlook your faults and you overlook my faults and let's just get along. Although we use the language of reconciliation, we're actually looking for something closer to national unity and not at a superficial level, at the level where I will see someone from a different ethnic group, for example, that used to oppress my ethnic group, I will see them as a brother or sister, genuinely. I think that there is that noble aspiration. Now, to achieve that degree of unity, I think the world has recognized you need two pillars. You need truth and you need justice. 
because bringing out the truth, as was done in South Africa, without justice, carries with it a number of long-term social risks that we see manifesting themselves in South Africa today. A kind of unspoken, perhaps even subconscious, but deep level of anger in the society, which remains bubbling away below the surface, manifesting itself in a number of socially harmful ways. On the other hand, where you have a justice process that is just the plaything of lawyers, which doesn't actually respond to the society's need for truth, but ties up the defendants in endless protracted wrangling over procedure and so forth. What you left there in the eyes of the population is, is a kind of sham, an unsatisfactory, expensive, remote, meaningless process. And the Camus Tribunal has straddled these tensions. Because Cambodia uses an inquisitorial system of justice, victims of the Khmer Rouge could apply to the court to become what are called civil parties, where they're entitled to be full parties to the proceedings, to have lawyers representing them in court, and indeed to appear in court, not as witnesses, but as parties who don't take an oath to tell the truth and who can directly question the accused. The power of that kind of mechanism for bringing out moments of truth can't be underestimated. So there was a moment where a civil party, when it came time for him to exercise his right to ask questions to the accused, and indeed the accused had no obligation to answer, their procedural rights are also being respected. He turned to the former head of state of the Khmer Rouge, a gentleman called Chu Sampong, ironically himself an, an intellectual with a degree from a top Parisian university, a PhD in economics. And he said, you knew my uncle. He gave his name. You knew him. You had letters from him. You wrote to him. But what happened to my uncle? Interestingly, Chu Sampong, the former head of state, he elected to respond to this man's questions. And he stood up in court and he recounted what he knew of the man's uncle. Only to then say, I'm sorry, I don't know what happened to your uncle. I myself was blind. I, I, I didn't know. I was a figurehead. I wasn't given information. I think we can readily appreciate the power of those kind of moments in court. There was one other one that was very significant. And I mentioned that the Communist Party of Kampuchea started to look inwards and purge people who identified as internal enemies. One of the first was Chiu Sampan's own brother-in-arms, a fellow intellectual who'd been student with him, who'd been really one of his best friends. Suddenly, this man finds himself arrested, thrown into what was essentially a torture and death camp in Phnom Penh, and he promptly writes a letter to the only people who thinks can save his life, his fellow senior leaders of the regime. He writes to them protesting his innocence, saying, I don't even know why I've been arrested. I have not even a counter-revolutionary thought in my head. Now, his jailer, of course, dutifully takes the letter, files it in the prisoner's file, and the prisoner is later executed. It never reaches its destination. Kyusum Pon, one of the accused, uh, now convicted of, of crimes against humanity and genocide, was one of the intended recipients of this letter. One day, the prosecution read the letter out in open court. We don't know if Kim Sampan had heard or read this letter before, but what was certain is it came from someone who he considered to be a blood brother. And it was telling that 
after this letter was read out solemnly in court, Kusampan went from sitting impassively in the courtroom to sitting like this. And I, I cannot know what was in his head, but it was a moment of truth. So in that respect, by bringing victims into the courtroom, that the tribunal was able to achieve something that most adversarial court processes are not. In terms of establishing an accurate historical record, a long-running trial like that, well over 400 days of trial, is able to achieve a measure of truth which has been tested up to a judicial standard. And it's helpful because, frankly, before the uh, Khmer Rouge Tribunal, the only thing that appeared in the Cambodian textbooks about the Khmer Rouge was two lines. In 1976, the regime of communist Capuchia came to power, full stop, and then Pol Pot massacred the people, full stop, and then it moved on. So Cambodia now has a much more accurate picture of not just the rights and wrongs, but the ambiguities of that period of history, which may not have been achievable if there had been only a truth process. The challenge in South Africa is that the senior leaders of the apartheid regime themselves, I think, perhaps with one or two exceptions, evaded the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Meaningful prosecutions of those who bore the greatest responsibility, I think, have not been achieved. And from the perspective of an international criminal lawyer, and I say so advisedly, I don't think there's been a single prosecution in South Africa for the crimes committed in the name of apartheid, which had been prosecuted as the crime against humanity of apartheid. Because there's a great difference between prosecuting someone for murder or for torture and then prosecuting them for a crime against humanity. And I think the social effects of that one still feels today in South Africa. I was astounded when I first moved here to see in the public discourse statements like apartheid wasn't a crime against humanity. As an international criminal lawyer, there had never been a shadow of a doubt in my mind that apartheid was a crime against humanity. And frankly, the international treaties that establish that are clear. If that fact is not deeply understood by the South African population, well, that's just historical revisionism. And I mean, here I can share an anecdote to the extent it's useful. What happens if we don't have truth and justice processes in a country? We should not underestimate how quickly collective forgetfulness sets in in a society. At the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, I worked regularly with Cambodian interns who would come through the prosecution office or other offices. One of them commented to me, you know, his grandfather had been a victim of the Khmer Rouge, but he was surprised that among his generation, some people consider the Khmer Rouge as a fairy tale or cautionary tale of the type you would tell to children, you know, watch out, the Khmer Rouge will get you if you misbehave. I was once in a city in the northwest of the country in a, in a petrol station and I saw two youths about 17, 18 joking with each other and one wanted to tell the other, oh, you foolish guy, you idiot, effectively. And in the local language, he was calling his friend, he said, oh, you Khmer Rouge. As if to say the Khmer Rouge were backward and ignorant people who didn't value education and you were, you're like that. Now, that trivializing of, of the harm done is, is intensely problematic. And I think that some of the public discourse we hear in South Africa runs that same risk 
either trivializing the apartheid regime, describing it at a level of superficiality, which doesn't do justice to the fact that it involved systemic crimes against humanity for 40 years. I don't hear South Africans referring to their own country as a country in transition, as a country where systematic crimes against humanity were committed for decades. We see the results in Cambodia after three years and eight months, much less than 40 years, whatever. What was the nature of the crimes committed by the Khmer Rouge? You mentioned that they were a communist regime. What were their guiding principles? What was the kind of utopia that they wanted to create? There are no fixed estimates of the number of deceased. The most reliable estimates that have been judicially tested range between 1.8 and 2.2 million people killed out of a population of approximately 7 million over a three-year and eight-month period. Hundreds of thousands of those deaths were directly because of ill-treatment, torture, and murder. Then there were a great many more deaths caused by conditions put in place by the regime. And here I'm talking about deaths through starvation, overwork, lack of access to medicine. The regime, it, it wouldn't even be fair to call it a communist regime. What it did, it was a totalitarian, ultra-Stalinist regime. What it sought to do was to deify the state to deify the nation and to use, if you want, those false gods to utterly crush the individual. So the regime never referred to itself as the Communist Party. It called it Ankar, which means the organization, or sometimes Ankar Noon, which means the upper organization when you were speaking about its higher echelons. And it sought to completely control and direct every individual need and impulse to meet the needs of the state. So, for example, uh, a transgression as simple as breaking a gardening implement or a plow was characterized as an anti-revolutionary act because that hole was the very instrument for the liberation of the Khmer people. And, you know, you had negligently broken it in the field, so you deserve to die. They had a saying, to lose you is no loss, to keep you is no gain. Executions were usually carried out with a, with a cart axle to the back of the neck, followed by cutting of the carotid artery to save bullets, because the, the bullets themselves were a state asset, and, and it wasn't worth spending a bullet on if you were an enemy of the revolution. The utopia they sought to establish was an agrarian utopia where there was no money and no private property. What's interesting is how that regime also became a mask for systematic gender-based violence. Because the idea was that even a woman's reproductive capacity must be put at the service of the state. So the Khmer Rouge, I don't think they, they were the first to introduce the practice but certainly to implement on a systematic scale the practice of forced marriage. The Khmer Rouge regime stands out for that. And frankly, the Khmer Rouge tribunal should be recognized for identifying forced marriage as a crime against humanity in the 1970s, which it hadn't been recognized at previously. One's physical labor, one's intellect, one's reproductive capacity, all of that was, was forcibly put at the service of the state. The individual consciousness was utterly 
eradicated. And there were wonderful examples, and I use the word advisedly, of human resilience in the face of, of this kind of total system. Uh, there was one lady who succeeded in keeping a private journal, something that was almost unheard of, by stashing it away in, in the roofs of barns, you know, keeping it, moving it from place to place, these bundles of papers in which she recorded her, her impressions and thoughts, her doubts and fears. Another well-known well victim of the regime, a young who was in love and about to get married, was told, well, she can't marry that person. She ended up being arrested and taken to the same torture and execution site in Phnom Penh, where she retreated into a kind of reverie where she would write love letters to her beloved, casting the both of them as mythical figures in Cambodian's equivalent of the Ramayana which is that great Hindu epic of kings that Cambodia has its own version in its own language. And, and she cast herself as, you know, this deity and her lover as another deity who are these star-crossed lovers. And that's how she, that's how she found the will to survive until she was killed. So that's something of the nature of the crimes. I should, I should mention it was so radical that even, even Mao Zedong urged Cambodia not to go as far as it was going. The, the Chinese authorities intervened with Cambodia saying, we have tried the great leap forward. It doesn't work. What was remarkable for me in, in Phnom Penh was to see every day some 500 Cambodians filling the public gallery of the tribunal, which was located at a fairly inaccessible military base on the outskirts of Phnom Penh. School children, you know, saffron-robed monks, the elderly, would, would, would take public buses in from the remote areas to sit and observe the proceedings for a day. There was a tremendous program of outreach. There was generally public support, although, and I, I've been a caution, you know, concerns about the cost, especially about the length of proceedings and about the, the measures that were put in place to respect the procedural rights of the accused. There were those who in anger would say, I, why don't we just kill them? And of course, the, you know, the United Nations would remind everyone of their procedural rights to be presumed innocent. At one point, the trial chamber had to chasten the executive branch of government for making statements that were incompatible with the presumption of innocence and, and make it very clear that the judges would pay no heed to those kind of statements by the executive branch. So. I think there was widespread interest. I remember one victim of the Khmer Rouge who spoke very beautifully in court uh, in his personal statement at the end of his testimony, saying, I would like to thank the judges who have crossed the oceans to bring us justice. And that wasn't just a maudlin sentiment. It was the, the heartfelt response of an individual Cambodian. But that being said, there were investigations completed against a number of others. None of them came to fruition. Number one, the accused were all of advanced age and a number of them either died or were found to be incapacitated for trial, unable to stand trial for reasons of mental competence. And then there were a number of middle ranking or senior ranking Khmer Rouge who were not at the very upper echelons of power against whom the tribunal was unable to proceed because of disagreements between the international and the Cambodian staff. There was, I think, uh, 
among Cambodian senior staff, uh, a sense that a line should be drawn in the sand. Only those at the very highest levels of power should be prosecuted and the rest should just be left. Whereas I think on the side of the United Nations, the standard to be applied was all those who bore the greatest responsibility should be prosecuted. What that means is that you don't prosecute the foot soldiers who were just carrying out orders, but those who either because of their position or because of the particular gravity or brutality of their crimes actually should attract international attention and not just the attention of the domestic justice system. Well, they should be prosecuted. The other factor here is that it's not possible to prosecute Khmer Rouge crimes before the Cambodian domestic courts. They have no jurisdiction. The type of defense that was raised by the accused at the tribunal, because the evidence of the wrongdoing was so overwhelming, they had two choices. They could deny their own knowledge of the regime, but it becomes very difficult when you're in charge you know, of an organization. If you have what the Germans call Organisationsherrschaft, it becomes very difficult to successfully convince a judge, you know, as, as the prosecution characterized Q. Sapan's evidence, the only man in democratic Kampuchea who knew nothing, heard nothing, saw nothing. So with that line of defense closed, you're left with a political defense. You're left with what the now deceased defense counsel Jacques Vergès would call a defense of rupture which is where you seek to turn the judicial process on its head so that the, so the accused becomes the judge and the judge becomes the accused and the prosecutor becomes a victim. You seek by means of your defense to utterly disrupt the dynamics in the courtroom. And so there was a concerted defense by the defense to suggest that the entire tribunal, the entire Cambodian government was implicated in some kind of grand scheme to stigmatize and punish these frail old men and one woman. And that in fact, all Cambodian judges and prosecutors were hopelessly corrupt. That there was in that line of defense, a high degree of paternalism. It was dismissive of the moral agency of a great many individuals who, who acted courageously and with propriety and with the right sense of judicial reserve and with uh, dignity in difficult circumstances. So one has to guard against that narrative as well. And the Khmer Rouge tribunal, I think, operated in, uh, under those kind of political pressures and it could have achieved more if those pressures hadn't been there. And it's an object lesson in the need for the independence of the judiciary. And that's something we we should be deeply grateful for. You mentioned that there was one female perpetrator. What was she accused of? She was included in that inner sanctum of leaders uh, that surrounded Pol Pot. She was the Minister of Social Development and her husband was the Minister of Foreign Affairs. She was found mentally unfit to stand trial. There was another woman uh, as well who was eventually had the charges against her dropped. And it's recorded, there's public information available about it. So she was alleged to have presided over a, a work site where roughly 15,000 people perished, forcibly laboring to dig a canal by hand. Uh, a canal which she took some pride in, in, in stating actually still bears her name. What it did do was overcome the culture of silence in the society, in a society where 70% of the population have been identified as having symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. 
where the rates of domestic violence are among the highest in the world. There has been a kind of collective opening up. And there were, if you want, success stories, if I can call them that, of situations where perpetrators and victims had been living side by side in the same village for decades. And there was this great wall of silence between them. No one acknowledged what had happened. And somehow this process of, of accountability had opened a way to, to reconciliation, to encountering each other, to speaking about each other's experiences, to apologizing, to remedying. There were well-documented examples of, of those kind of social shifts. South Africa as well, you, you encounter the same culture of silence in, in many respects. When I first arrived in South Africa at UCT, I asked one of my very distinguished colleagues who'd been involved in in the transition to democracy in this country. I said, well, why on earth were there no meaningful prosecutions? And my colleague looked at me, you know, with, with concern and with furrowed brows and said, it was just part of the political settlement. And there was this sense of it's possible to do more. Some people have described the TRC process as a betrayal of justice. They say that after people have admitted to committing grave crimes, not just against individuals, but crimes against humanity, that being granted amnesty is inappropriate. There are some people who testify during the TRC process who are behind bars, either because they weren't totally truthful, or because it could be shown that their crimes weren't politically motivated. Eugene de Kock was sentenced to multiple life sentences, and Janusz Walisz, the killer of Chris Harney, is still in prison. There have been some prosecutions, but they have been few and far between. However, we know that by granting amnesty, we were able to learn a lot about what had occurred during apartheid especially under conditions where the South African government was able to use censorship measures to shield some of its crimes from its citizens. A lot of people had no idea what had gone on, but the TRC process made people confront that horrible truth. It seems that there's a trade-off between justice and reaching a political settlement. The difficulty, of course, is striking the correct balance between building a new nation, reaching reconciliation, and ensuring that justice is actually done. It may not be accurate to conceive of these as opposing forces. One has to think more deeply, I think, and try to find coherence between a principle of justice and a principle of truth and how the two of those contribute to unity or national reconciliation. Where you have a situation in a society and you can see the perpetrators and the beneficiaries of systemic crimes against humanities prospering and flourishing, I saw the same thing in Cambodia. It creates a, a deep sense of wrong, harm, uh, and of ongoing oppression. I, I often see these two things, truth and justice, being presented as, as dichotomy somehow. And I don't think they're dichotomous. I think, in fact, you need judicial accountability for the planners, the designers of the system, not the masses that were willfully kept ignorant. What criminal responsibility could they have? Effectively none. Social accountability, moral accountability as a beneficiary of a regime, yes, of course, but legal accountability, no. If we examine a number of states in transition, what you're seeing now is an attempt to have both a truth process and a justice process that, that operate in tandem in some way. And I think to be fair, those few isolated cases of apartheid or accountability that you've pointed to are exactly that, isolated. They in no way encapsulate the, they are not representative of the criminality of apartheid. 
And they haven't entered the public discourse as such. They've entered the public discourse and the public consciousness as isolated cases of particularly brutal uh, activity by misguided human beings. But there hasn't been that same accountability of the system. There are a number of risks in a society when that happens. One of them is the risk that a victim group may end up perpetuating the cycle of oppression. And we see that in other countries. It's a risk that every society has to guard against. And adequate memorialization and an accurate historical record helps to do that. We see now in Europe the rise of a kind of fundamentalist nationalism, which shows that despite the legacy of the Nuremberg tribunals, a lot of those lessons are being forgotten still. And that is one of the most robustly memorialized uh, atrocities in the world. If I look in what happened in Cambodia, victims were allowed to apply for only collective and moral reparations. There were no individual reparations that could be awarded. That's what happens when you have a donor-funded tribunal. But interestingly enough, the collective process of collecting bones and putting them in, in memorial stupas, Buddhist memorials for the deceased, having the ceremonies and rituals to remember the dead, an accurate histor history book for the schools, all of those things are, are extremely valuable and shouldn't be underestimated. I had the sense in Cambodia that there was this ongoing process of memorialization. A few years ago, the Cambodian government decided to end the practice they called the Day of Rage or the Day of Hatred, which would commemorate the, the Khmer Rouge regime and its victims. They changed its name to the Day of Reconciliation. The way in which South Africa's experience of apartheid is memorialized in the public discourse is quite different to what I've seen in, in other post-conflict societies. Somehow our desire to be a rainbow nation has led to a forgetting that we are still a post-conflict society. The desire to herald the success story of the TRC, which it was, it brought about, as you say, a peaceful transition in situations where there could have been bloodshed. But that in itself doesn't negate the absolute necessity, robust justice. The use of judicial inquests seems to be the way in which the country may deal with these things. And we see one example with the Timor inquiry. In those proceedings, you can see that the voice of victims comes a little bit more to the fore. And there is a judicial finding of historical truth. Uh, which comes out of it. You know, something I sensed in Cambodia was that although there were isolated calls for retribution against individuals, one of my neighbors memorably said, I can't see this guy on TV without wanting to punch the TV. He said, if we look deeper in the Cambodian society, the most fundamental question that people want the answer to is why did Khmer kill Khmer? And it, 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 it's ironic because with that comes the assumption that, well, if you kill somebody who's from a different group, well, that's a very limited conception of what it is to be human. But the, the, that deep social question was, well, why did Kamai kill Kamai? The trials and the judicial record shed light on that question because you started to understand that this was not just about a group of individuals who were power hungry. It was power hungry individuals meeting ideology, meeting the total abnegation of the religious system that had existed in Cambodia that regulated its morality and inspired its morality. 
because that was the first thing the Khmer Rouge did away with. We sometimes think that, well, they, they were communist regimes, they must have been fighting the bourgeois. The reality is that the Buddhist foundation, which was the, the, at a very fundamental level, the, the core of the being of the Cambodian population, it was that that was desecrated first. The monasteries were abolished. The role of monks was abolished. The, the connection of the Cambodians to their spirituality and to the transcendent, their transcendent understanding of life was suppressed with, with violence. Monasteries were turned into pigsties and butcheries, which, you know, would have run counter to the deepest beliefs of a, of a Cambodian. One has to examine at a root level. What did South Africa lose by apartheid? And to target its truth and justice process towards restoring what was lost. I don't think in our public discourse we have reached the stage of honesty to be able to acknowledge what actually did we lose because of the choice to put in place this kind of regime. We, we focus rather on what was the harm done by the regime. But that's quite a different question. What should it look like? It has to be a truth process and a justice process that aims to restore what was lost, as well as looking forward. The Truth Commission restored a part of what was lost, which was that that awful limbo of not knowing what happened to one's loved ones, not having a body to bury or a place to grieve or the certitude that the person is gone from this world. So that restored a part of what was lost. It didn't restore though, the, the sense of outrage that a lot of people must feel at some level that this regime was perpetrating international crimes in the name of the South African people, marshalling the resources of the state to do it, in a very fundamental way, taking the fruit of people's labor and directing it towards murder and torture. That role, I don't think, was addressed by the TRC. I think what remains a perception in all segments of the South African society is that if you are powerful, you can do as you please. The way it manifests itself in Cambodia and in South Africa is a bit different. But if we examine below the surface of social interaction, that attitude is there and it's prevalent. In my prior discussion with Gilbert Marcus, we talked about the fact that the TRC didn't just grant amnesty for crimes, it also granted civil immunity for those that admitted to committing those crimes. Ordinarily, someone who was tortured or who had lost a loved one would be able to put in a civil claim and receive financial compensation but the TRC made these civil claims impossible. The suggested answer was to ensure that there was a reparations fund so that victims could receive compensation from the state. However, this process remains largely unresolved and many victims have received no reparations. If we look at another crime against humanity as an example, after the Holocaust, the German government paid reparations to the state of Israel. Some of that money was used to pay individuals, but a portion of that money is used by Israel to build up its state capacity in an effort to prevent a further genocide. The argument is that individuals who have suffered a wrong should be compensated, but that future people matter too. South Africa relies quite heavily on a redistributive taxation system. Taxes that are collected are at least in theory meant to be spent on building schools, 
hospitals and trying to build up a new nation. It could be argued that this type of taxation is a form of recompense for those that were wrong during apartheid. So Cambodia has it is a materially impoverished country at a level that South Africa can't imagine. It doesn't have the extremes of wealth and poverty that South Africa has, but at an absolute level of material poverty, it's far poorer than South Africa. It's much of its government operations depend on donor funding. So the decision was taken precisely for the resource reasons that you identified to focus only on what were termed collective and moral reparations. There was never a promise made of individual reparations. And so there was never a promise of individual reparations that could be broke. But those, those reparations funds are not just pooled into building better roads and hospitals and schools. The public very quickly forgets that that's actually a measure of reparation. They are explicitly channeled towards reparations work, which means, for example, uh, memorialization and uh, historical research and dissemination of public information so that the connection between the use of the reparations funds and the social impact is very, very direct. Now, again, that may be a, a donor-imposed requirement, which South Africa is not subject to, but I, I do see, if you want a class difference between an argument which says, well, reparations funds should be used for reparations projects, and then reparations funds should be used for general government expenditure almost inevitably takes place in a political context. International justice more so because just the very name of the tribunal, its formal name, the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia suggests that it's an extraordinary remedy. We wouldn't think of going to court to sue a landlord for failing to repair something as extraordinary. It's, it's mundane now. But of course, the tribunal attracted a lot of political attention and operated in extremely difficult political climate. Part of the concern was whether it was, a, was a difference of vision, I think. It was, does one adopt a hierarchical approach to target selection or a gravity-based approach to target selection? And certainly the prevailing international standards, which the United Nations apply, were that you, you really target on the basis of gravity. And the International Criminal Court does the same thing. But I think on the side of the Cambodian government, there was a, a clear sense that Justice demanded that the, the, the very upper echelons of power be held accountable. And by that, I mean the inner circle of Pol Pot's immediate entourage. Pol Pot himself had been put on trial ironically by his own people for being an enemy of the revolution. And he died uh, long before the end of the civil war in Cambodia. Cambodian prosecutors and judges with whom I worked were, were operating in a very difficult political climate and it was easy as a foreigner to stand in judgment over them and lament lack of commitment to prosecutorial independence or the rule of law. And my own children, you know, weren't at risk. My family wasn't at risk. If the experience taught me anything, it was not to demand moral excellence from others for the simple reason that it's something we can demand for ourselves and probably struggle and fail to do. We certainly have no right to ask it of other people. History is full of the accounts of those who heroically stood against repressive regimes, apartheid included. History doesn't remember the great many who felt so terrified and compromised that they could do nothing. It's wonderful to look for morally heroic examples if it inspires us to action, but there's a long road between that and, and demanding virtue from our fellow men. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of Constitutional Landmarks. Throughout this series, I'm going to be interviewing some of the greatest advocates that have ever appeared in the Constitutional Court. I will also be speaking to the judges who authored the court's landmark decisions. We'll be speaking about gay marriage, free speech, and a range of other exciting issues. In the next episode of the series, I'll be speaking to Dave Stewart, who acted as former President F.W. de Klerk's Chief of Staff. We'll be discussing the National Party's role in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and some of their perceived shortcomings in that process.